Hey, what's up, everybody? Today's episode is with Brandon Renfro, who is a he's in the National Guard. He's done some live in flip action, which we'll talk about later on. But he deals with the distribution and retirement side of financial planning, which is a piece that is just so incredibly important that we often forget. So we're going to dig into the famed 4% rule, what it is, why it matters, how to adjust it, and some other key factors for planning for your retirement so that you can enjoy life once you're done building wealth and working for a living, you can actually relax and enjoy life. If this is your first time joining the community, thanks for listening. If not, welcome back. Show notes are found at frommilitarytomillionaire.com slash podcast. Now relax and enjoy the show and subscribe. You're listening to the Military Millionaire Podcast, a show about real estate investing for the working class. Stay tuned as we explore ways to help you improve your finances, build wealth through real estate, and become a person that is worth knowing. Hey guys, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the roadblock to success for military members in getting started in real estate investing. For many of us, the barriers of time, location, and not having the right knowledge keep us from building wealth while serving our country. Well, let me tell you about Storehouse 310 Ventures. They get it. Storehouse 310 Ventures is owned by two active duty naval officers that love to make investing fun, lucrative, and have a passion for education, theirs and yours alike. They offer full turnkey rental properties in a market where the numbers make sense, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, Milwaukee, home to the almost 2018 division titled Milwaukee Brewers, the well-known Miller Brewing Company, and a lot of delicious cheese. Storehouse 310's properties are fully renovated, leased, and have property management in place. Through their rigorous analysis and selection process, they do everything possible to ensure each rental property meets their high standards and offers fantastic returns. Storehouse 310's allows you to invest with confidence while you are living out of state. They have a network of lenders, insurance companies, contractors, a title company, and much more to serve you all along the way. There is absolutely no reason not to get started when you have the right teams and system in place. David and Stu, the owners of Storehouse 310, have been investing themselves for over 15 years. They are on a mission to help as many active duty, reserves, and military veterans create financial freedom through the power of real estate investing. They are honest, transparent, and they prioritize service and giving. They have even committed to give the first 10% of their profits to partner nonprofit organizations that support veteran causes. For more information about their program, send an email to podcast at storehouse310turnkey.com. Again, that is podcast at storehouse310turnkey.com. Tell David and Stu you heard about them through the Military Millionaire Podcast, and they will get you going down the right path. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Dave with Military to Millionaire, and I'm here with Brandon Renfro, who spent some time in the Army as an officer in the infantry side of the house, and now he is in the reserves and teaches, uh, well, he teaches personal finance with a specialty focus on distribution and retirement stuff, which is really cool because I've had some finance nerds on the podcast with myself, but I have not talked the retirement piece very much, which is... Uh, I mean, that's the piece that really matters, right? You got you to gotta be able to have a closing game in life or it's going to suck. So without further ado, Brandon, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, yep. Thanks for having me, man. Um, no, yeah, you got it. That's me. Uh, I am an Army officer. Uh, actually, my entire time has been uh, as reserve status in the National Guard. I've uh, been in for, uh, I guess, 10, almost 11 years now. Uh, and, and as you said, my civilian career, I'm a finance professor. Uh, so... Uh, I teach right now at East Texas Baptist University. Uh, I've been a full-time professor uh, since 
I guess 2015. Uh, taught for a few years at a community college before that. Um, but yeah, that's that's me. I uh, National Guard teach full time, uh, and then I have a uh, retirement planning practice uh, where, as you said, uh, you know, deal with uh, retirement issues mainly on the distribution side is my uh, you know focus, my specialty. And uh, that's me. I've got a wife and two kids, a four-month-old boy. It's pretty awesome. And a six-year-old, well, about to be six-year-old girl here in a couple of weeks. So loving it. That's exciting. So what got you into uh, being a professor of finance and the retirement side specifically? Like you're uh, you're a little young to be focused on that age, but I, I like it. Yeah, no, dude. So at the risk of losing any cool points I ever had, um, it's just, I, I think it's exciting. So when I went to undergrad, uh, you know, I kind of typical thing, I guess, you know, knew generally what I wanted to do, you know, something in business, but definitely did not show up to undergrad thinking I was going to be a finance professor one day or even a finance major. So part of the curriculum where I went to a, at Southern Arkansas University, there was a class that was kind of like a, an intro to business, but it was called American Enterprise. And part of that class was a professor from each of the areas that come around and kind of do like a round robin, you know, hey, this is, you know, my area. I'm the marketing person. You know, I'm going to tell you kind of what marketing is today. Uh, you know, so the finance guy came and he, uh, I will never forget this lecture. Um, Dr. Ashby and I, I still friends with him today, but he did a lecture where he showed you know, how you could um, very easily, you know, just investing in index funds, consistent savings, dollar cost averaging uh, over a career, you know, become a millionaire if you would just save consistently. And I, I think the, the number that he used was $2,000 a year from the time you were like 18 to 65. And uh, man, I thought he was lying. You know, I went back and checked the numbers. I was like, oh my gosh. And I was hooked, you know, from that point on. Uh, still didn't know that I'd be a finance professor, but definitely was hooked on finance. So, uh, you know, explain why you like your hobby. I, I really don't know. It was just exciting, um, which, yeah, you're right. It's not the, the normal 18-year-old kid's, uh, you know, source of excitement, but I thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, I like numbers, so I get that. I, I will say that you use fancy words like professor and and planner, and I just call us all finance nerds, which is probably like yep. the way to go about it. But I, I, I think I think there's a huge difference between like a financial planner and a finance nerd. Uh, and I think that's like, you know, people are always like, oh, that's kind of a derogatory term. Like, no, it's totally not. Because anyone who loves numbers is like, yep, that's me. Yep. Uh, I will sit around and mess with Look, look at me censoring myself uh, mess with Excel docs and random spreadsheets like but I, the one piece of my entire like passive income real estate side that I have not turned over is my bookkeeping because I just enjoy tracking the numbers and yeah. uh, it's a huge waste of time it's like an hour a month that I don't need to do I could be almost completely passive but I just enjoy it and uh, I think there's just people out there that so I could see how you would get into it and be like oh my god compound interest is amazing and just enjoy that yeah. Yeah, no. So, uh, so yeah, majored in finance. Um, again, at the time, had not decided that I was going to go uh, be a finance professor after undergrad. Uh, I did go to work uh, for a short while as a financial planner at Wells Fargo. And during the 
So during that time, I, you know, had the GI Bill. I'd already joined the Guard. And so I was going to get my MBA simply because the GI Bill. And, you know, why let that go to waste, right? Might as well get an MBA. So about halfway through the MBA, I realized that I was kind of getting sad about the idea of school being over. You know, which, again, felt odd, right? I'm like, man, you should be happy that's over. You know, like, why, you know. So I just went and talked to one of my professors about it and thought, man, like, tell me about being an adjunct. You know, what's this part-time teaching thing about? And uh, so decided I was going to go ahead, you know, get the 18 graduate hours that was needed so that I could, you know, maybe teach a, teach a class one or two a semester and, you know, do the financial planning thing. And uh, taught my first class. It was a principles of economics class. And um, it was during that first semester. I thought, yeah, no, this, I've got it backwards. You know, I need to go. I need to finish this out, go get a PhD and do this full time. And, you know, I can always come back to practicing later, maybe, um, you know, on the side. So like I do now, you know, part-time planner, full-time professor. Uh, and so that's, that's what I did. Don't regret it. I just wish I would have seen, you know, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, if I would have seen the end result now, you know, I guess would have went more directly for it, but uh, don't regret the path I took and I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, so we were had this like great thing going on where we were bonding on my finance nerd definition, and then you said something about enjoying school, and I lost you. Okay, um, not for anymore. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I enjoy the teaching side of things, so I, I can see why you would. Um, I don't think I could ever say that I got done with a class in school at any level and said, "Hmm, I could do with some more of this." Uh, that, yeah, that's that's why I have an E in front of my pay grade. Um, so uh, that being said. Uh, why, why retirement? Uh, man, I don't know. You know, I think so part of, like I said, is just, a, a you know, gen, the, the analogy I use all the time is right. Like, so picture somebody that likes skateboarding, you know, have them explain why they like skateboarding. I don't know. It's just fun. You know, so there's that part of it. I, I can't really explain. It's just interesting. Uh, but then too, I think one thing that gets me stuck on it is realizing how important it is. You, know, you think about so many things in life you know, you can get a second chance on, right? Or, you know, you can delay it a little bit or you can, man, retirement's really not that way. You know, you, you really get the one chance to, uh, to do it. And, uh, although I'm generally not a super serious guy, uh, I think, I think deep down probably that's, that's part of what's driving it is one. It's interesting than two to know it is so serious, you know? Yeah. What, uh, what do you think are some of the key things that a youngster should do from kind of an early age when thinking about retirement? I asked that, uh, and I know there's no right answer, wrong answer, right? But every, everyone's system or strategy is different. But I asked that thinking maybe like 25, because most 18-year-olds aren't thinking about it, although I wish they were, yeah. uh, because it is something that often does not get thought about until way too late because it's not sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and, and man, that's a good question. And you're right there really is no universal correct even set of answers. You know, these are the things you should do. But that being said, that's, that's kind of where you find that right answer in you just simply start, right? So, you know, you have to say, you know, um, you know, you know, you've got to start saving some money. So you could either, which, you know, and, and I always kind of qualify this statement with, you know, don't hear me saying just wing it. Don't hear me saying just go blind. But, if you're on the other end of that spectrum where you're more likely to paralyze yourself with over analysis, stop and just 
just start saving. You know, so you could agonize all day long about how much should I save? Well, how much can you save? Save that, you know, or should it should it be in a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA or the TS? Like, well, just pick one, you know. Again, don't get me wrong. Yeah, take the time, you know, parse through the detail. But barring that, or if you know you're going to get bogged down in the analysis and do nothing, just opt for doing something. So that, I mean, that's huge. You know, that compound interest. If you start now, you know, it's got more time to compound than if you start tomorrow, which is more time than if you start a year from now. So that really is the big thing is just start. Save as much as you can, as often as you can. Are you a TSP fan or is there a preferred index fund 401k that you like? No. So I am a big fan of indexing uh, in general. And for that reason, yes, do like the TSP. Uh, I think the TSP funds are very cost effective uh, and, and very efficient. Uh, so, so no, I think, I think the TSP is a good, uh, you know, a good plan, a good, a good system. Let me unmute myself before I start talking. Uh, for those of you who heard him mention earlier, the $2,000 a year, right? Uh, what I tell people all the time is like at a bare minimum for your entire career in the military, anytime you're in, you should be putting 10% away in your TSP. And if you do that, that's your 2000 a year for, for most of us. Maybe, maybe not the first year. Maybe it's not. Well, actually, if you put 10% in and you got the BRS 5% match, it'll be that 2000 a year. Uh, and then if you continue with that, and I would say when you get a pay raise, up your TSP 1% or 2% every year, uh, you know, and I botched that. I, I had been, I put 10% in my TSP, but I left that crap in the G fund for, you know, and the years that I joined, you'll appreciate this. It was, uh, so from 2008 to 2000, like 14, 15, my money sat in the G fund and earned like one to 3% interest. Yeah. Uh, funds that I'm currently in earned an average of like 18 to 30% interest. Um, so I, I did the math one day and I think I'm out like 25 grand just by leaving it in the wrong fund over that time. But I still have a substantial amount there. I still have time to recover it. So if you just do 10% at least in your TSB, put it in the life cycle funds. So you don't have to worry about it. If you're not, if you're not a finance guy or whatever, um, but just, do that. Like before you even think about anything else, if you just do that, like you're already winning the game of finance and you're never going to know it's missing if you did, if you started it right away. Yeah, for sure. Hey, and on that note, actually, so you talked about the G fund that, that has in the past been probably the biggest source of contention for me was the overwhelming number of people who, because they weren't finance nerds and because they didn't, you know, like you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yep. Kind of a deep, it, and you'll, you'll probably remember better than I do. Uh, Historically, the G fund has been the default fund, right? Like your funds were automatically invested. Up until I think last year was the first time. Yeah. Within the last year or two is when it finally decided to go life cycle as a default. Yeah, that's awesome. So, that, I mean, that's a huge, huge, um, yeah. you know, improvement. Yeah, that, that was probably my biggest, uh, like I said, um, you know, source of, you know, angst with the TSP was that, hey, here's a 20-year-old. Let's stick him in the G fund. Well, you can afford a little risk. Yeah. It's okay. never lost money. Yeah, but it's not really ever made money either. It yeah. doesn't outpace inflation at all. So. Yeah, no, and, and that's, again, another. so if, if the biggest thing I would tell that, that young person just starting out is just start, you know, save as much as you can as soon as you can. That next part is, you know, 
what you just hit on was, you know, so there's always this backstop of, you know, don't take too much risk, you know, don't take more risk than you can handle. And so that you, you know, put yourself in a position to overreact and do something stupid when the market drops. But, um, you know, yeah, don't, don't be afraid to, uh, to test yourself, you know, um, riding that G fund out for 30 or 40 years, um, is going to hurt a lot more in the long run than if you'll just accept, uh, you know, some volatility, uh, you know, over the course of that, that time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially, and I tell people this all the time, uh, although risk is definitely not something to be just taken for granted, uh, especially for us active duty folks, you know, at a young age, you can afford to take an extreme amount of risk more so than probably the rest of the nation, because let's say you're a young barracks guy, like you lose every penny to your name investing in the stock market or real estate or whatever, because you went all out. You just, everything went wrong. You lose everything. You still have a barracks room. You still have free chow hall. You still have free medical. Like you're fine. That's it. Yeah. You lost your money. Okay. Start over. Big whoop. Like you're not on the streets. You got nothing to worry about. Uh, now I say that if you have a security clearance, you might have something to worry about if you go way too far off the deep end. But usually the people who buy the really expensive car they can't make payments on are more at risk for losing their security clearance than the guy who dumps 80% of his paycheck in the stock market and loses it because you're not in debt to anyone. You just lost your money. So you're safer losing all your money in the stock market than in a Mustang. But anyway. Yep. Yeah, no, valid, valid point. That to say, don't, don't overdo the risk, but I, I use that as my justification because I'm a huge risk guy, but yeah. I've, I've mellowed out since, I, but, uh, okay. So we haven't even touched on it yet. I want to touch on it. We're probably gonna spend a decent amount of time talking on it. Could you explain the 4% rule? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, like I said, with distributions, um, you know, kind of my area, that's generally the, the kind of go-to rule of thumb. Uh, for how much you can distribute from a portfolio, right? So, so the application here is, okay, I've retired. I have this chunk of money that I've saved up, right? And so how much can I withdraw from that? So the 4% rule says, you know, you can withdraw 4% uh, of that balance and then adjust it each year for inflation after that. And you can reasonably expect uh, that you won't run out of money, which of course is, you know, kind of the significant risk in retirement, right? You know, you wind up, you're, you know, 85 years old, not quite dead yet, but you've run out of money, not a good condition to be in. So, uh, so that's, that 4% rule comes from a uh, study, famous study in the area uh, from Bill Bingham. So he did this, this historical study and said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at rolling periods of 30 years, you know, so it took this, this 30 year period represent a normal retirement. And so I said, okay, if I, if I roll through these, you know, these 30, 30 year periods, what is the most that you could have withdrawn in a historical context uh, and never depleted the portfolio in that 30 year period? And that's where this 4% comes from. Uh, it's what he called the safe max, the safe maximum withdrawal rate. So if you had withdrawn 40 or 4%, 30 years, you never run out of money. And so we kind of take that rule and say, okay, that's what we can kind of plan for, uh, you know, in retirement. So if somebody retires today and they're using the 4% rule, they're going to say, okay, I'll take this balance, uh, withdraw 4% of it in the first year. And the next year I'll, you know, adjust for inflation and, you know, continue to take that, that distribution. Um, and so that's, you know, that's 
fine enough, right? It's a, it's a rule of thumb built on uh, some historical research. But, you know, uh, my, my statement on the 4% rule is to always, for one, you know, caution yourself. Note that that rule was developed in history, right? So the historical context, you know, it worked. But we don't know that the conditions of the past will repeat in the future, right? So it's, it's really only a guide. You know, just because it's worked in the past doesn't mean it will work in the future. So there's, you know, the big, you know, the big qualification up front. But then, two, uh, you know, always think about also the different parameters that were in place in the study. So for one, the big one, the 30-year retirement, right? So if you, you know, early retirement is kind of a popular thing right now, right? So say you're, you're 45 or 50 years old, you know, hopefully, you know, unless you're just the most pessimistic person uh, or, you know, you have some legit, you know, reason to believe that it, it'll be, you know, hopefully you're planning on a longer than a 30 year retirement, right? So if you think about how that would adjust, you know, if we're saying we're going to hold that 4% rule, uh, you know, use that, you know, to, to kind of look into the future there. Well, if we need a longer withdrawal period, you know, we would have to adjust that withdrawal rate downward some. And there's no, there's no hard and fast, you know, this is how much you should, uh, you know, reduce that withdrawal rate, you know, when you increase the expected length of retirement. You know, there's no hard and fast mechanism. Uh, but it's the relationship that you should, you know, just keep in mind, right? So if I have a longer retirement period and relying on this 4% rule, I'll have to adjust that downward. You know, you can flip that to the other side too, though, right? You know, you work until you're 75 years old, more power to you, but you probably don't have a 30-year retirement that you need to plan for. So you can withdraw more than 4%, right? So just all, you know, always think about the, you know, the adjustments that you need to make. Because, again, it is just a rule of thumb, although there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the way the rule is constructed. Just recognize that there are parameters uh, that will change for, for each given investor. You know, we talked about risk, too, right? So one of the things that uh, Bingham looked at in the study was the composition of the portfolio. And so he tested a, a pretty broad range. I can't recall off the top of my head that all the different portfolios, but a pretty broad range of asset allocations. Uh, and actually what he found was that portfolios that had 50 to 75%, or maybe it was 80% of the portfolio in equities, those were actually the portfolios that did better. Um, so as you looked at portfolios that had less than 50% in equity, so they're more conservative, you know, a higher percentage of bonds, those portfolios uh, weren't able to sustain as high of a withdrawal rate uh, as portfolios that had a little more risk. You know, you could go the other direction too, though, right? So above that 75, 80% in equity, uh, we started to see that the risk was, you know, um, you kind of didn't make up for the risk, right? So the, the fluctuation in the portfolio uh, kept you from sustaining such a such a high withdrawal rate. So, you know, think about your risk tolerance and how you plan to invest. That's going to affect uh, the withdrawal rate. And usually what I tell people there is to, um, you know, there's, so there's risk tolerance, but that's kind of driven in part by education. You know, so if, if you think you're uncomfortable uh, with a given asset allocation, sometimes you can educate yourself into a level of comfort. Uh, so in the context of that 4% rule, 
you know, I think if, if you're coming into retirement and you're thinking, well, I, I, you know, all bond portfolio, that's all I can stomach. Well, if, if you've learned that, you know, okay, great. Again, don't overextend yourself. Don't take the risk you're not comfortable with. But if you're just doing that without any base of education or experience, you know, just the idea of risk and that's it. Well, you know, hey, maybe you can kind of educate yourself really on what that risk means and see that, you know, in a lot of cases, really, you're, you're taking on more risk once you flip into that retirement period by being, you know, all the bonds, no equity. Uh, so, you know, something to think about. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously, like you said, it all depends. It all fluctuates. There's so many factors. But uh, I happen to know a guy. I'm not going to name him on here just because, you know, that's finance is personal, but uh, he's been retired now, I think 17, 18 years from the Navy, right? And he did the 4% thing. Um, his portfolio has grown every year. I mean, not maybe not every year, but over that time period, much outpaced what he's been withdrawing. And the man lives in a very expensive place in the world, no problems. And honestly, like he's in a position where it just keeps growing faster than he needs to pull money out. And he's been like gifting money, you know, like, yeah, like his inheritance early or whatever to say, Oh, Hey, here you go. Um, and, and like, it's really cool to watch. Cause it's like, Oh, there's a proof source. Um, and obviously it could depend, but I mean, we're saying 17 years in 2019, which means that, Oh, that's right. There was a huge crash that the world ended and everybody lost their shit. And he made it through that doing the withdrawal thing without freaking out. So yeah, doable if you budget, right. Yeah. And too, actually you, you kind of hit on another point there that, uh, you know, might might be a little deeper, uh, but but it's it's worth mentioning. Um, so if you think about again, then what that four percent even represents, right? It's the it's a safe withdrawal rate. So if you look at all of the withdrawal rates, you know that that you could use. What what we're saying is from this study that Bingham did, four percent was the safe withdrawal rate. You never depleted the portfolio. Well, if you think about it, you never depleted the portfolio. Think of all of the other instances where you really never came close. And so, in fact, in most cases, you would have started with more money uh, or you would have ended with more money than you even started with because you're not, uh, you know, depleting that portfolio. And so there's some trade-off to think about there, too, right? Um, you know, if you look at your like, obviously, that's a good position to be in. You're not running out of money. But the other thing, like for your friend that you're thinking about, you know, that also means he could, could have. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? That's the whole reason you're being safe here is because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But in hindsight, he now realizes he could have lived, you know, a lot, uh, lot snazzier lifestyle than he did. Uh, so I'm not saying that's even a goal, right? I'm not saying push for that. Yeah. But just that is certainly one of the byproducts, you know, of, of quote-unquote the 4% rule or any safe withdrawal rate is, yeah, it's by nature. It's going to be a relatively low withdrawal rate um, because that's that's where you get safety from uh, is that lower rate so yeah no that's that's actually a a very good uh, good point and very relevant to the discussion of the four percent rule yeah i mean let's just think about the magnitude of that for those of you who are worried about retirement or who have parents worried about retirement or helping your parents survive retirement i mean it's a very real possibility that things go wrong all the time and a lot of people get ready for retirement realize crap we're not there. Uh, now what? So just think about the magnitude and how powerful it would be for you 
to have a retirement account, have a withdrawal rate where you're able to survive off the money that your account is providing for you. And then holy shit, you die and it's worth more than when you retired. Like talk about a nest egg to pass on to your kids, your grandkids, your favorite charity, uh, the government and taxes, like whatever, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, however you choose to do that. But that's, I mean, that's really, really cool to think that you could be retired for 30, 40, 50 years and say you retired with $2 million in a bank account, which is doable. I'm not saying like, that's not an absurd number, guys. You retire with a million, $2 million in a bank account. And then 30 years later, it's worth five, $10 million or, or three, $4 million or whatever. And you're like, this is a great problem to have. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think? Ooh, and I'm going to flip this and this is going to be one of those questions. that's like totally not answerable, but, uh, uh, it's an opinion one. So just a forewarning for those, this is an opinion. I'm going to say it for him. Uh, what do you think is the biggest mistake you can make in retirement planning? Mm. I have no idea what you're going to answer on that. I, I just, yeah, no, no, we did not. I was talk like, about oh, that's a flip script. That's going to be a fun one. Yeah. The biggest <laughs> or a, um, I don't know, a huge, I don't know, whatever. Obviously not saving is a pretty bad one, but yeah. Okay. So, um, one I think is not thinking about that transition period hard enough. Mm. So, and I don't think it's, you know, some people do it, you know, without, uh, you know, they kind of make their own bed, right? Like they know they're just being irresponsible and they don't think, but to some extent, you know, I don't think that we, we, we collectively, you know, as you know, either, either educators or the finance industry or whoever uh, put enough emphasis on that transition period. So, you know, if you think about, you know, you're like, you know, we spent the first several minutes of our discussion talking about you're saving, you're saving, you're saving, you're saving. Well, when you flip the script to, okay, I'm retired now and I'm withdrawing, 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 you know, you're, you're reversing the flow. You're reversing. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're flipping that coin right to the other side. And so I think a big risk that people take is they, they get used to saving, saving, saving for, you know, decades, right? You know, 20, 30, 40 years of a career. And they don't stop and think about that transition period. Enough. You know, there's asset allocation to think about. There's uh, budgeting to think about. Uh, you know, there's some pretty key risks, which, uh, you know, one of, one of the ones that I always address is the sequence of return risk. So when we talk about asset allocation, you know, as you get kind of near retirement, and then shortly after the point of retirement, right? So like, you know, maybe five or 10 years before or five or 10 years after, uh, you know, and you can kind of define that range. Uh, you know, it varies, right? But that, that kind of period around retirement, you're very, very susceptible to market performance. You know, so if the market takes a big hit shortly before or shortly after, and again, shortly being, you know, kind of broadly defined as several years before, several years after, um, that has a very outsized effect on, uh, you know, your retirement. So like, you know, you, you mentioned the, the 08, you know, market a moment ago. So if you retired, say 07, 08, 09, somewhere out in that time frame, or, you know, even, you know, as far back as 05, you know, whatever, that 08 crash kind of hits you uh, a lot harder than it does for somebody who's, you know, even if, you know, you, you were invested during 08, you know, but if you're, if you're still working now and you're not retired, well, you know, you recoup, you know, you didn't start taking distributions from that portfolio, um, especially those early distributions. 
you know, conversely, if you've already been retired for 10 or 15 years and then that 08 market hit you, uh, you know, it didn't affect you as, as bad uh, as it did those people that, that it hit right kind of at that critical moment. Uh, and so that's, I guess if you ask me on the spot for a, you know, one single mistake, it's not adequately preparing uh, for that sequence risk, uh, either late in re- you know, late career or early retirement. I like it. I'm going to throw another curveball at you because that was fun. And I came up with, I, I thought of something while you were talking. So Dang. Uh, this is something we definitely didn't talk about. And I'm genuinely curious, but if you don't have an opinion, we don't have to talk about this. This is okay. something I'm noticing as a trend these days. So uh, I'll just do it. We'll play the, we'll play the role play game. I'm i I'm 65 or 70 and I'm retired and maybe I have enough money, money. Maybe I don't have enough money. Maybe I'm just totally SOL, but I own a house free and clear. What do you think about me re- pulling a reverse, a reverse mortgage? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not categorically opposed to reverse mortgages. Um, you know, I, I do think they, uh, they have a place. Uh, it's not something I generally, you know, suggest to people immediately. Uh, one, just because, you know, there is right now kind of a general state of people don't, uh, probably don't understand them. You know, average Joe, average Jane out there probably doesn't really understand it. And I'm always weary of, uh, you know, having someone try something that they're, they don't understand uh, and they aren't comfortable with. But, but no, I'm not an anti uh, reverse mortgage guy by any stretch. Fair enough. I, th- I think there's, I mean, I think it depends on your situation, but I think there could be some use to it. Um, I mean, like, like you were saying, it really just depends because, you know, if you're trying to leave your house to all your kids, it might not work out for you. But if you're an older couple who doesn't have anyone to give their inheritance to like, screw it. But yeah. And two, you know, I think so, so reverse mortgages, you know, annuities fall in that category too. Uh, there's, there's good ways to use them and there's really bad ways to use them. And fortunately, uh, I think there has been a propensity in the past to use them in the really bad ways. Uh, and so they just kind of get that connotation now, but from an academic standpoint, you know, uh, you know, throw out all the, you know, unscrupulous actors out there and we're just talking theoretically. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, reverse mortgages, I think there, there are times when it, it can make sense. So I'm, I'm not a, uh, I've never done one with someone before, but I'm, I'm not fundamentally opposed. Cool, cool. Uh, for those of you listening who don't know, the reverse mortgage is essentially like some kind of crazy backwards version of like a HELOC where you're essentially taking the value of your home and chipping away at it by taking paychecks from the bank. And then you, that you're like eating equity away from the property, but you're living on it. So if you have a million dollar home, it could basically act as a million dollar retirement and you're just pulling bits of the equity out. So unless I, I hope I explained that at least somewhat okay, but if you want to yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, that's the basic idea there. And, and like you said, you know, you, you get to live in the home until you, uh, you know, pass away. And uh, at that time, your estate can either settle the balance uh, or the bank owns your home, you know, so. Uh, Which honestly could make probate way easier depending on, I mean, if the bank just says, yep, that's ours, like, eh. I don't know. Maybe that makes probate easy because probate is not a fun process for a lot of people. Um, and honestly, probate seems to be like, I have several friends who probates their exit strategy for real estate because they know how expensive the taxes are. And they're like, well, you know, if I die and it goes to probate, like nobody has to pay the taxes on it. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's anyway. Uh, all right. So 
I know you had a quick real estate story. I want to touch on that because that'd be fun. And then we'll, we'll dig into some of these questions and kind of wrap things up. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my favorite, uh, you know, like I told you, I don't consider myself, you know, people say, Hey, are you a real estate investor? No, to me, that implies a, you know, you're real active and, you know, I bought a couple of real estate, you know, a couple of houses, I've got some rentals, but, uh, you know, don't really consider myself super involved in it, but my favorite real estate story. Um, so my wife and I, we lived in an apartment, probably like the first, I don't know, like five years we were married or so, something like that. And uh, we bought a real small duplex, uh, continued to live in our apartment, bought a little, little duplex and, uh, you know, rented it for several years. And then when we got pregnant with our first kid, we said, okay, we got to move out of the one bedroom apartment. So let's start looking for a house, right? So did the whole house hunt thing. And we finally, and of course, you know, being a, the finance nerd that I am, you know, it definitely, I was not looking for you know, the nice fancy house, you know, I was, I was looking for a, you know, an opportunity to, to build some equity. So uh, we were looking for uh, foreclosures, stumbled across one. It uh, was kind of in one of those, you know, all the houses in the neighborhood are the same kind of deal, very homogenous, you know, this one looks just like that one. So I say that to say, you know, all of those houses in that neighborhood had, you know, within a couple thousand dollars, the same value. So, you know, we knew what this house, you know, if it was fixed, we had a very good indication of the value that it would have in the market. Well, the foreclosure value was slightly less than half. Uh, it was through the HUD uh, program. So, you know, I had like slightly less than half of what we knew the house would appraise for once we got it all fixed up and moved in. So, uh, you know, we, we got it. You know, of course, I had to place the bid through the realtor and all, but uh, we, we lost the bid the first time. The number was good. It was like, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the HUD foreclosure process, but they, uh, they're real picky about their, uh, their paperwork and all that's kind of notorious for rejecting bids that they, they're willing to accept, but because the paperwork isn't right, you know, so it got rejected and the, the realtor even said something like, you know, Hey, this is going to be a terrible process. Are you sure you want to like try this again? I was like, lady, I don't think you understand. Like, you know, instant like doubling of my value. Yet. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But I'm certainly going to put this bid back in, you know? And uh, so we put it back in, got the bid. And, uh, you know, so we got the house and it was somewhere around, uh, so this is in Southwest Arkansas, Northeast Texas, Texarkana straddles the state line there. So we're on the Arkansas side and, uh, the, the house, right side. the right side, of course, God's side. Um, so we, uh, the house was, we got to like $45,000, put a roughly $5,000 into it, and then it was, you know, going to appraise for, you know, we figured in the 90s, and, and it ultimately it did appraise in the 90s. But um, when we went and checked it out, I mean, it was, it was essentially just cosmetic issues, right? So, like, hole in the wall, but, you know, no serious issues. Like, yeah, you know, just kind of fix this up, and we'll be good to go. So... While we're over there working on the house, uh, the neighbor comes over and starts talking to my father-in-law. And uh, I never verified the story, but he said it, and it's hilarious to me. So it's it's part of the story now, whether it's true or not. Uh, he said that the couple that the house was foreclosed on, it was uh, a lady, her husband, and her ex-husband 
that all lived there in the house together. So oh. understanding that, the condition of the house became less surprising to me. Mm. Um, there was a middle bedroom. So it was a three-bedroom house. The middle bedroom they used as a dog kennel. Oh, God. Okay, yeah. So I'm not talking about, like, cages and crap in there. I'm talking about, like, shut the bedroom door. I almost threw up pulling the carpet out of that room. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you can imagine, right? Like, just a demolished house. Oh, yeah. Uh, looked like the husband and ex-husband probably had several fights in there. But we got it fixed up, worked on it for about a month. And uh, sure enough, you know, lived in it uh, two years. And then we got it uh, refinanced, the cash-out refinance, and bought two more small rentals. And so, uh, you know, worked out great for us. I would 100%, you know, do that over again. But, uh, you know, as you know, finding deals like that is, uh, mm. you know, not something you're going to do every week. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting more difficult as the market rises. But, I mean, that's the fundamental rule of real estate, right? Money's made when you buy. And you knew you had a steal when you bought it. Yeah. Yeah, no, awesome. so I, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. We still have that house. So uh, just, just kept it as a rental now. Now you have a place to reverse mortgage in 40 years. There you go. <laughs> and then they'll probably have some like whole life insurance reverse mortgage on the, what I don't know, some other somewhat complex strategy thrown together with a huge commission check for someone. Right, uh, right. <laughs> anyway, not to condone any of those. There's good and bad strategies to use all of those, but they are the ones with the bad name out there because people buy into the bad ones because they're shiny. Um, yep. All right. Hey, so... Uh, I always like to ask this, but what is one resource, book, course, website, whatever that uh, I usually ask for real estate, but I told you I wouldn't do that this time. So I'm going to get it right for finance or retirement strategies that you really enjoy. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. Uh, the book I always suggest when I'm asked uh, that question, a random walk down Wall Street. Hands down, my favorite uh, book on investing and saving. Uh, there's some some sections in there that talk about retirement plans. Uh, just overall a good book uh, to start with. And it's one of those two, it's a, uh, I don't know what edition it's in now, but several, I think it was originally published, um, I think in the 70s sometime. So, you know, updated throughout the years. And uh, classic, so you can get it for, you know, a couple bucks on Amazon, but phenomenal book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I will have to check that one out. I have not yet. Awesome. Before we wrap this up, anything you'd like to add? Any parting advice or big ideas? No, I don't guess so. Just uh, like I said, you know, do something, you know, certainly learn. I mean, I'm a professor. I'm not telling you don't learn, but I know that that message is often unheard, right? You know, go learn everything you can. Sure. You know, but if you're not going to do that, you know, learn a little bit and then just start doing something, start saving. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of power behind just taking action. So awesome. Well, Hey, Brandon, where, where can people get a hold of you? Um, so you can go to my website, just brandonrenfro.com. Uh, Renfro is R E N F R O. So brandonrenfro.com. I have a blog there. Uh, I write about retirement. Uh, most of the articles that I write are going to be on, distribution issues uh, or taxation um so not not the not generally going to be the hey you know how do you say an IRA or 401k but uh, on the back end but um, if you're curious that's uh, that's where you can find me
if you're not interested in it, you should be because that's going to be your future, whether you like it or not. Huh. Awesome. Brandon, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, man. Glad you had me. Awesome. This has been fun. Have a great day. Cool. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarymillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.